The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Tesla, Facebook, and Netflix square off with investors, and China is admitted to an index it has long desired to be part of. These are the topics we'll be discussing on this week's edition of The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Jennifer Saba, and with me is my co-host, Anthony Curry. Later in the program, I'll be passing the baton to my colleague in Asia, Quentin Webb. But first, it's that time of year again. Investors get the opportunity to vote on major proposals and voice their opinions about board directors. In this segment, we're joined by Breaking Views U.S. editor John Foley, and we're going to focus on Facebook, Netflix, and Tesla. So um, let's start with Tesla first. Anthony, Yeah. we have um, Elon Musk, who is the chairman and the CEO. So he's pretty entrenched. Obviously, he controls the board. Is yeah, that, and he's also he's got a he's got a fantastic pay package. If he gets it, he could earn another f- something worth fifty odd, sixty odd billion dollars over oh, the next right. ten years. Okay, but what's interesting about about it is that there's only one class of stock. Yeah. So he owns what twenty percent of it. What's he owns around twenty percent of it. Yes. Yeah. So unlike a lot of tech companies, there's no dual uh, dual class stocks. There's no way of entrenching. Um, owners or managers in other ways, like, say, Facebook. So like Facebook, that's right. Um, so in that sense, you know, he's he's been pretty good. And also in, in various things, he, he has recused himself and said, my vote doesn't won't necessarily count so on his pay package, for example. He doesn't uh, when, vote when that, when that When that went to a vote at a special meeting of shareholders a few months ago, uh, they set aside his vote. And they said what had happened once he voted, but they set it aside so you could see the, more obviously the results of what independent shareholders were after. Okay, and as we've discussed in in several podcasts before, I mean Tesla is is having a bumpy ride, so to speak, to on, say the least. To yeah. say the least, on the production of their next model of cars, uh, the fact that they could be running out of money, uh, but y- their share price is like through the roof. You said, that yeah, I mean it's it's it like- it's it's down from where it was uh, last year, quite significantly, about a third, I think, roughly a third, but it still trades at thirty five times. 2020 estimated earnings. Although I think those earnings estimates have come down a bit as well. Um, but yeah, for a car company, even a car company that may well be able to participate in what may end up being a huge change in how the model works, you know, how you make how a car company makes money from cars, um, it's still a ridiculous, a ridiculous multiple to have. Okay, so there is a bit of a shareholder dilemma here, because there is if you cast your vote against Elon Musk, right? as the director or chairman, um, and vo- effectively you're saying, we don't want this guy running the company. We, we don't have anything to do with well, that. Well, right? I think that's maybe the, the, the ultimate fear if you, if you do that. Now, if you, if you look at what's, what's happening with Elon Musk, right? So he sets up this, this company, or should I say he joins as a, a later founder, um, Tesla, um, over a decade ago, and then turns up to run it ends up taking it public, uh, and now it trades at this fantastic multiple. Um, people love it. They love the cars. Uh, they, they've, lots of them put down deposits to buy the Model 3. They've been waiting two years, uh, and they're just beginning to come off the production line. But he's got a lot of people backing him to the hilt, no matter what. And at the, the annual meeting of shareholders on Tuesday afternoon in California, many of them turned up to ask questions and basically say how much they loved him. It wasn't quite that bad, but it was, mm. you know, it was a lot of adulation. Um, and that's where the problem comes in. So if you think that he's maybe doing too much or going over the top or needs reining in or whatever it is you want to phrase it as, and you can look at various things he's done over all that have been happening over the past few months and say maybe he does need help, maybe he does need reining in, um, 
to go against him in any way, shape or form at the moment possibly uh, leads to some degree of magic dust being lost. And that means that if you do need to raise money, maybe the share price won't be as good. But here's the thing about Elon Musk is, as we've seen recently, and as you guys have talked about before, his personality is, to put it mildly, is a bit abrasive. He's taken on analysts in the analyst call, saying they're boneheads. You know, he constantly is finding new battles to fight on Twitter with anyone who criticizes him. Including the the media, obviously. Including, of course, us, the media. So, So the shareholder meeting, in a theory, is a chance for shareholders to hold him to account, but it sounds like what happens instead is it becomes a kind of forum for this personality cult. Well, yes, I mean, that, that's often what ends up being the dilemma for companies run by founders and all those with entrenched stakes, right? Um, Tesla is very much a personality cult of a company and has been for quite some time, especially since, I'd say, especially over the past three or four years. And the amount of times I've heard investors and, and people who say they're analyzing the company say, well, it doesn't really matter whether he earns money or not in X number of years. It's all about the journey and, and what he's doing and how he's just completely radically changing the, the automotive industry. And it's not that radical, frankly, and it's not as if other people aren't doing it. But Musk has got this aura about him. Yeah, I mean, that, that speaks to its market cap, right? And there's, there's another company that's sort of like Tesla, Tesla-like in certain ways, and that's Netflix, where they are basically trading at 50 times... 2020 earnings, which is just absolutely crazy. Their market cap is roughly $160 billion. It just overtook Disney. Um, and they've come out of nowhere. And and it's kind of a similar structure. There's one class of stock, but there is Reed Hastings, who is the chief executive officer. And, you know, I, I think it's a vote of confidence. People um, really, really like this company and really like that executive and think that down the road he has solved this issue, even though they're not making much money and they're burning through a ton of cash. At least they're making money. Tesla is not yet making money. In fact, yeah. it's, it lost its mo- the most ever in a quarter in the first quarter of the year. Yeah. So um, it's, it's again, it's like they're playing the long game and mm. that these guys should be there um, to see that out. But then if you look at Facebook, which I know you were, Jen, looking at the Facebook shareholder results, there, it is entirely possible, judging by what just happened at Facebook, that shareholders just aren't very good judges no. of character at all. Because yeah. if, you're, if you're talking about um, you know, Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg at the top of Facebook, Facebook has been getting into all kinds of scrapes most recently. Of course, it, it suddenly discovered that it had been sharing data with Chinese mobile phone makers, you know, there's the Russia election meddling data that was mishandled and given to Cambridge Analytica. And yet it looks like shareholders still, for all that, even though they, I mean, they can't get rid of him, but they didn't even try. They were only one in three Not of them even voted a protest it. vote. In, only, yeah, exactly. Well, only actually, one in I don't three know. I, I disagree with you. I think in. one in three independent shareholders voting against a CEO or director is pretty high. Um, really? I, yeah, absolutely. Why do you say that? One uh, one, in three? No, one in, one in three. Independent. Independent. Starts getting high. It doesn't, okay, it doesn't change anything. But if, if I look back over the history of, of, of AGMs that I've covered, whether it's Ford, JP Morgan at the height of the crisis, unfortunately, shareholders, and, and, and I, I must, I agree with you, I can't believe that not, not enough of them voted. Uh, because normally, when you, when you get an absolute crisis, that's when things really do happen. When you get the chairman and CEO role split, or where you get rid of directors, or at least directors lose a lot of support. 
but to, to lose a third of independent voter support is actually quite high. Although in Facebook, the, the astonishing thing was that if you actually look back into the past, this is a good result for Zuckerberg. There were a couple of years ago, I think only two of the Facebook directors did get um, effectively re-elected by independent shareholders. Of course, it doesn't matter what they think because it's Zuckerberg that controls the company. But this was a better result for him than he got two years ago, even with all of the stuff about Cambridge Analytica, even with the, you know, the congressional hearings that he kind of came out, you know, looking a bit, you know, there was good and there was bad. Yeah. It is weird. Isn't it? Although the, the other thing that, he, that, that independent shareholders did vote for overwhelmingly was to remove the super voting stock, right? Which, of course, doesn't matter because the super voting stock keeps it in place. Right. Well, that's what's so strange is that they voted to collapse the share structure, which is the exact structure that keeps Zuckerberg entrenched. Well, aren't they are they sending aren't they sending a message? If you're not well, obviously there's nothing they can do. But it's almost like if that many of them vote in favor of getting rid of the super voting stock, it's like saying, if we get that power, then you're next. So well, you would think, but then you would think that they would like two out of the you know more of the independent shareholders would have voted to say, listen, we don't think you should be a director or a chairman. Maybe they, they want him to run the company, but want him to know that he's on a shorter leash, which is impossible to do in this company because he can just ignore all of it. True. But I, I think what's happening, and I, I think you're on to something, John, I don't think investors really know. <laughs> so <laughs> I think they're just sort of completely blinded by the market caps of these companies. And they just think that they're just total juggernauts and that they're just going to keep on chugging along and they're going to ride this wave as, all, all as, that as they, long as they can. I mean, obviously, they are trapped, but they chose to be trapped by this super voting structure. But you know, look at Tesla. I mean, they're kind of trapped as well, which is it's a very simple trap, which is we've thrown a lot in with the founder, the CEO, who either has a majority stake through, uh, in Facebook's case, through um, super voting structure or owns a large chunk and has become this personality that we adore. Um, to go against that means kind of abandoning everything you've put into the company as an investor, right? So why would you, so at the moment, unless you think there's someone else who can run the company effectively and not depress the share price and thus your investment, and in Tesla's case, quite possibly mean that you can't raise the capital you need, which puts the company so in wait, real problems. So wait, so are you saying that, that basically Elon Musk, okay, I get the vision part of it, but why do you keep saying that he can't raise the money he needs? I mean, is he the only one out there who could do that? I mean, I, Abs- I, I absolutely question not. that. But it's not for the investors. It's not a. It's not first and foremost about whether someone can or cannot raise the capital. Um, it's going to be if if he's no longer seen to because the vote the vote this week was about whether or not to remove him, remove his chairman's title, right? Keep him as CEO, remove him as chairman. And also there was a, a big uh, move to try and get rid of uh, by by some shareholders to try and get rid of. Um, the three of the uh, the only three directors up for vote uh, for re-election this year. Um, if he, he loses even a degree of control, and his creativity is seen to be impeded, then you know, so goes the theory that we've come up with on on the, the Tesla faithful. They'll start thinking that Tesla will no longer have that magic dust as much as it used to. The share price might therefore start dropping, even though they're going to say, look, let's remove his chairman's role just because you've got too much on. You've already, you, you run SpaceX. You're chairman and CEO of this company. You're saying you're sleeping on the, on the factory floor while the production hell, as you describe it, for Model 3 is being sorted out. You've set up a startup, a Neuralink. Um, you're all over the place. You're on, in Twitter boards. You're having a go at, at, at analysts. Maybe we just need you to calm down a bit and just focus. And having an independent chairman would help you do that. But that's not where they're going. They're going to the, if we change anything about this, then you know, the allure could be lost. Um, 
the money that will need to be raised, it could get harder, but, but I think more likely in the short term, it will just get more expensive. The share price drops and yeah, you know, you've got to spend, spend more money to get, to get less. Okay, so John, uh, I'm going to throw this to you. Let's take Apple. This is a good example because when Steve Jobs died, everyone thought that company was going to collapse and Tim Cook wasn't going to be anywhere near as good as Jobs, who was the creative force. He was behind all the products. He was he was Apple in, in many ways. Um, so that shows like now, I mean, the, the share price is doing quite well. Um, it's humming along. So a company could withstand the loss of its creative. Yeah, I mean, if you're a shareholder, you're clearly fearful that the person who you put your money into is not going to be around and that whoever they elect to replace them isn't going to be as good or that they just haven't even bothered to think about who's going to replace them. This is something you see happening at Berkshire Hathaway with Warren Buffett. People worry about what happens when he goes slightly less because he's kind of put some successes in place. Yeah. You see it with Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan. Um, you definitely are going to see it with um, Elon Musk at Tesla, which is why he's now kind of introducing shareholders to some of the other bench of executives that he's got around him, which is no, no bad thing. But I mean, ultimately, all, what all of this tells you is that shareholders really don't necessarily always think very much towards the long term. And I think a lot of these shareholder votes show you that shareholders aren't necessarily behaving like owners and they're not thinking in the long term. There's no reason why every independent shareholder at Facebook should not withhold their votes from Mark Zuckerberg. Absolutely. They and particularly after this past risk. year. Exactly. There is zero risk that he's going to leave or be kicked out because they don't control that. He does. So you've got nothing to lose by like firing away your protest vote and saying, you are doing, in some respects, a terrible job. Now, with Elon Musk, it's very different. The risk for you then is that if you do withhold your vote for him or you, you vote to kind of split his jobs or something that's going to you know, annoy him, the risk is that you actually succeed. And then you've got a problem because you've annoyed your chief, you know, the, the main guy in your company. That's not a risk with Apple. And it just tells me that shareholders really are, they're not using their powers properly. Hmm. You also see it, I have to say, you also see it in a lot of the proxy, um, proxy documents that come out. Shareholders will propose things like gender gender pay studies or they'll propose you know diversity assessments where, where they're asking companies like alphabet to do more work or show their workings about why their senior management is not more diverse and the companies consistently say we don't want to do that and shareholders say okay and they don't push it any further yeah absolutely yeah i mean we, we see that we see that a lot we're seeing it um in uh, climate activism as well at the moment where there's i mean i went through a whole list of proposals this year and the vast majority are a report on um, your ESG risks, a report on um, lobbying and climate. It's, it, these are all useful, right? These are nice things to have. But what you really want is some, you know, really give it some oomph, give it some welly, as we say in the UK, and you know, go after you know, link executive pay to climate risk or whatever it is that you think is important as a shareholder, regardless of what your company is. But it happens so rarely, and only when companies get in trouble. But I must say, even when shareholders... Even when they're in trouble, they don't. Well, not yes, that's right. Not well, always. Facebook, Facebook really should. Well, they, they they had a sort of split vote there. But again, I, I think you're right. I think they really should have gone for for more than one third of them should have gone for, uh, gone after Zuckerberg and Sandberg. But I still think one third, when I think a lot of shareholders are far too supine, act more like bondholders, frankly, um, is not the worst result in general. But in Facebook's case, I don't quite understand it. But even when you do push hard, Ford is a great example. Ford, which you know went public over sixty years ago, still has. Super voting stock that gives the family 40% of the vote with 2% of the economic interest. And every single year for the past three or four years, I forget how long it is now, independent shareholders have said, we want to get rid of the super voting stock, but the family can just ignore it. Uh, they also voted against the, um, the long-term incentive plan for executives this year, and the family can 
just ignore it. So even when you do put your 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 vote out there to ca- to be counted, well, it doesn't make as much difference as it should do. It, even for these l- much longer established companies that have, you know, arguably much less to lose. Which makes you think that in the grand scheme of things, all the change that we want to see at companies isn't going to come from shareholders. It's going to come from regulators. It's going to come from lawmakers. Certainly in the case customers. of Facebook, and it's going to come from customers. Yeah. Okay, that is a great point, John. And we'll be keeping watch over this as more companies and their results are going to be coming in over the next couple of days. It's time for Chinese shares to take their place on the world stage. The long-awaited inclusion in MSCI indexes means a lot of foreign money is finally going to flow into Chinese markets. I'm joined by Chris Bedor, our China columnist, to discuss what this does and doesn't mean for China and for global investors. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me, Quentin. Chris, what's the significance of this move? It's been a long time coming. Of course, in the past, MSCI has thought about including China and then rejected it. Um, This decision was taken a while ago, but is now only coming into effect at the beginning of June. And I guess it will take years for it to ramp up to where it will eventually be, uh, China's eventual inclusion in these indexes. Talk us through the significance. Sure. Well, I think first and foremost, you have to say that the significance is symbolic uh, for the Chinese government. They've been working with MSCI, talking with MSCI for years, as you as you mentioned, um, have been trying to get into this. This is a very large psychological achievement for them, that they think that they're kind of incorporated into global markets in a way that they weren't before. There's also just the more practical significance of having money that either tracks the MSCI or is in some way kind of benchmarked against some of their indices now coming into the country in a way that we really haven't seen up until now. So we have this sort of odd disconnect where China had risen to be something like a $9 trillion stock market if you take Shenzhen and Shanghai together. And yet there was very little sort of foreign money able to go in there. But I think we should say, just remind me, there are lots of ways in which People are investing in China or Chinese companies already, of course. That's that's absolutely right. So, of course, you have a lot of Chinese companies that are listed in U.S. stock markets and in other stock markets abroad, um, not least Hong Kong, of course. Um, you also have some sort of limited programs for foreign investors to get into the country. So... Um, the most obvious one is probably the the so-called stock connects that link Shenzhen and Shanghai to the Hong Kong stock market. So as long as you have a, a trading account in Hong Kong, um, you can. There's a process by which you can get into the mainland markets. There's also some programs um, such as a qualified foreign institutional investor that that allow you to get into um, the the country that way. Um, but I I should say too. I mean, your original point that. Despite some of these programs, there's really just not a lot of foreign money relative to the size of this market. I mean, foreigners probably hold uh, somewhere between 2 to 3% of the overall market. You compare that to someplace like India or Taiwan, um, where range, it ranges from a quarter of the overall market to upwards of 40%. So we're still talking, even though there are channels, it's, it's still relatively small. So the issue is for most equity investors, they are benchmarked against one index or another. MSCI isn't the only index provider, of course, but they are a very significant uh, maker of global benchmarks and emerging market benchmarks. So the issue for investors is that if you're benchmarked against one of these things, you effectively have to be underweight China versus China's importance in the global economy. 
That's that's exactly right. So I think that it really is one of the significance here that um, now that the MSCI is gradually incorporating um, mainland stock markets more into its its benchmark um, to a much greater degree than ever before. Uh, if you're a large institutional investor based in in New York or London, now you sort of have to be paying attention not only to Chinese stocks, which again, as we've discussed, you already had access to a little bit, but but really just mainland shares, uh, A shares as they call them. And what sort of companies are joining the world stage? We're already familiar with Alibaba and Tencent, you know, right. these giant technology companies listed abroad. Who else are we getting access to now? Well, so now you have the pleasure of getting access to firms like Weijo Maotai, uh, one of the most interesting firms uh, in its own right, an interesting stock in its own right. Um, the Chinese government has been very keenly at times following the progress of that stock. You also have tech firms that maybe don't rise to the level of uh, or have not chosen to tap money abroad. So, for example, Hikvision um, produces uh, video surveillance equipment. Um Firms like these uh, that you otherwise, if you're if you're again sitting in New York or London, you wouldn't really have access to. Now um, you might have to start paying attention to. And Kuaito Maotai is a famous producer of sort of Chinese firewater, basically Baijiu, which yes. is very strong kind of drink used to seal any kind of business relationship in China. So you're saying that's one of the big things that foreign investors will now be able to put their money into. Yes, um, I'm not I'm not endorsing their product, um, but it, it is a very interesting stock, uh, not least because, I mean, in the past, it's, uh, yeah, the Chinese regulators have, have watched it quite closely, and it's even been kind of a proxy for some political developments because it's used in a lot of official banquets, it's used as gift-giving and so forth. Okay, and can we sort of quantify this a bit? So how much money is going to flow in? How long will this take? As ever with Chinese reform, this is a multi-stage, multi-year process, effectively. Are we talking billions, trillions? How much money do you think is coming in? So it's surprisingly difficult to gauge exactly how much money is coming in on the back of this. MSCI itself figures somewhere in the range of probably a little under $20 billion for the initial inclusion. Now, I say initial inclusion because um, the stocks that are going to be incorporated into some of the MSCI indices uh, they're only going to be weighted at a, a fairly low rate, about 5% of their kind of adjusted free float at the very beginning. Now, of course, what's going to happen is that over time, over periods of months and years, uh, that weighting is going to increase in some of the MSCI uh, indices. So um, I think, you know, MSCI has kind of hinted that this might go a little bit faster than some other emerging markets when they joined and it was over a period of many many years that you didn't you got full inclusion um, I think China will come a little bit faster than that but it's still going to take a while um, and when that does happen that's going to involve more and more you know progressively more capital coming into the country as it gets weighted higher and we'll be talking about many hundreds of billions of dollars in the final account yes absolutely. Okay. And so I guess another way of thinking about this is how will this change China? You know, I know you wrote a piece for us recently where you argued that actually this would have a kind of salutary effect on Chinese corporate governance, on Chinese bosses. What do you think is going to change? Well, the way I see it is that mainland markets, in part because they're so closed off from the outside world, they're, in many respects, they're what you might call a kind of still maturing market. So there's a lot of weird quirks to it, a lot of inefficiencies. Um, first and foremost, you have just a lot of retail investors relative to other 
markets in developed countries, for, for lack of a better term, you they account for probably more than 80% of turnover on some of these markets. Um, they're a bit more prone, you could say, to kind of swings in sentiment as opposed to kind of the underlying uh, fundamentals of some of these corporates. Um, you also have... Um, government-backed players, such as the so-called national team, which holds a not-trivial percentage of the overall market. Its goal is not profit maximization in the classic sense, but it's to kind of keep the market stable, even prop it up at times. Um, you also have a lot of um, very kind of what what Western investors would consider very un- unusual forms of regulation. So, you know, telling individual brokerages to kind of stop some clients from trading and so forth. So um, I think what that all means is that there's a lot of inefficiencies in the market that potentially foreign investors could come in and could spot a chance to arbitrage. So if retail investors flood out of a specific stock because they another one is kind of the, the share of the day, um, yet the overall, the, the underlying corporate fundamentals have not changed. Maybe that does present a buying opportunity for some of these investors. And, and hence, at the margin, it kind of nudges us a bit more toward a more efficient, more mature market. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank all our guests, John Foley, Quentin Webb, and Chris Bedore. And hats off to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio, Freddie Joyner, and Ben Kellerman. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to the Viewsroom on iTunes. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.